0: Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with my great never-ending talking partner, Jeff Madoff. And I'm in Toronto today, and Jeff is in New York, where you have left New York at certain times in your life, haven't you, Jeff? At certain times, yes. Yeah, but it has to be for a worthless cause. (laughs) Anyway, we are just talking about the subject of retailing, which of course has gone through convulsions because of COVID and other things, including the digitization of everything. We were uh, just talking about a master class that Jeff just completed at the New School in New York, which is a very famous prep school for a lot of very, very creative careers in New York and around the world. We were just talking about some retail stories and I was telling Jeff about my personal relationship with Harry Rosen, who is arguably one of the most famous and most iconic retailers in Canadian history. And I've met people from the big men's fashion. It's all men's fashion. He's not not into women's fashion at all. But I've talked to people from Xenia and from, you know, Hugo Boss and other people who have come to visit in the stores and they say he's known throughout the world. Harry's in his 90s now. But in his 20s, late 20s, early 30s, he started men's stores in Toronto and it grew into a national network of stores that are now 17 in number, I think, and they have 800 employees. They have about 40% of the affluent men's market in Canada. So they're really a very, very powerful force and one of the great brands in Canada. I was one of Harry's, if not the last, I was one of his last personal clients and I met him through strategic coach client who knew him personally. So I was able to meet him personally, went to lunch with him, and he invited me to come to the store. And when Harry invites you to come to a store, that means you're going to buy something. So anyway, at a certain point, I picked his brain about his knowledge as a retailer. And I said, what are the biggest problems in men's clothing retailing to men? at the level you do it. And he said, there is only two problems. He said, man comes into a store and someone doesn't come right up to him, you know, and greet him and ask him what he wants. And as a result of that, he thinks they don't care. And he gets angry and he leaves the store. And he said, that's the first problem. He says, second problem is man comes into the store and someone comes right up to him and greets him and asks if he can help him. And he thinks they're being pushy. And he gets angry and he leaves the story. He says, other than those two problems, we don't have any problems. Well, you know, interesting you mentioned
1: that. The other night I was at dinner at Harry Sipirani in New York. Very expensive restaurant. The food isn't special, but it's all very well prepared. And it's very expensive. But what you're paying for is the experience in the restaurant. And what that means is when you sit down, they offer you still a sparkling water. They don't bring over a menu. Might be 15, 20 minutes. They'll come back. Would you like to see the menu? And they, I'm sure, build into their price that they probably do half the number of turns in a busy evening that a regular restaurant does. But they're always packed. And they're always packed because it's comfortable. You know what you're going to get. You're treated really well. You're not rushed. And it's a dining experience. We were there for three hours. And there were people sitting there who were there when we arrived and still there when we left. You know, it's like what you were saying. Some people in the stores, if you go up too quick, they're offended. If you don't go up quick enough, they're offended. (laughs) But so much has to do with establishing the trust as a foundation for the relationship. It's true in retail. It's true in restaurants. You know, how often do you ask? The waiter, how is the bronzino? Yeah.
0: You know? And it's all about trust, I think, is a huge part of it too. One of the things is I think that more and more we live in a an experience economy. And that I say, you know, when somebody buys a Mercedes or let's say, you know, whatever the high priced, you know, luxury car is these days. I've never been a car guy, so I I don't have much feel for that. A lot of my clients do. And I say, you know, nobody has ever bought a Mercedes. And they say, what? I said, nobody has actually ever bought a Mercedes. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And I said, what they buy is the experience of being seen in their new Mercedes. Yeah. And humans buy experiences, and it gets packaged in the form of products or services or anything like that. And when there's no experience, we're very, very unhappy with the product, and we're very unhappy with the service.
1: Well, I think you're right, because one of the main things that you're missing when there isn't an experience is you're missing a brand. Now you're dealing with something that's become a commodity,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: whatever it is, and then it's all about price and efficiency and it's not about the experience and luxury goods be it an expensive restaurant a car or clothing people want that experience and they want to feel valued mm-hmm. you know in the store experience when we were talking about customer service and the decline in retail by the way was nose diving long before covid in 2017 there were 10,000 store closings and there were something like 2000 openings the numbers are a bit off but the point is, there are many more closings than openings. And the first thing that the stores did in terms of cost cutting was eliminate customer service. So the only thing that they had to differentiate themselves you know, from buying online, which is customer service and attention, they got rid of that first.
0: Yeah. And so like in the high schools, the first thing they eliminated were the extracurricular activities. Right the
1: after-school programs that were so
0: valuable. The sports, the theater, the music. Right. Everything that kids went to school because they loved it, they eliminated that. Right. And then they eliminated all the teachers who were really interesting because they were involved in the extracurricular activities. No, you're right. You're right. And I think it's fascinating
1: because why isn't that obvious? You would think if some smart people sat down in retail... And I said, well, what's our differentiator? Because if you're buying online, you can buy from home. You're going to sit there in your underwear and click. You don't have to go anywhere. You click and you pay for it. And it's all really simple. But it's also kind of like a vending machine. You know, a few clicks a day or so later. I love, you know, a day or so later you get it it's Amazon, you get it the next day. But what I love about that is that they brag about next day service, Every store I've ever been into, I actually left with the merchandise that I purchased instantaneously. <laughs> <you> know,
0: <laughs> I'm writing a new one of my little quarterly books, and it's called You're Not a Computer. I think that people are missing God a lot these days because they're making other things into gods. The computer god is one of the leading contenders now for the major god I meet a lot of these people, you know, in the technology conferences that I go to, and they talk about, you know, in 30 or 40 years, you know, human intelligence will be far surpassed. And I said, well, you know, for a computer to be smarter than a human being, the humans have to strive to be stupider than computers. And I said, so I think what's going on is not so much an advance of computers, but there is a considerable dumbing down of humans that I see. And they're trying to get rid of everything that makes human beings unique. They're trying to be conforming. They're trying to be group minded that they only think what the group that they're in thinks and everything else. So that probably relates directly to why retail failed, because the unique individual sort of idiosyncratic type of service that you used to get from retailers. I remember there was a little diner very close to where Babs and I lived in Lower Chinatown, Toronto, before we became wealthy landowners. (laughs) It was called Barney's and Barney was an ex-boxer and all of his cooks. We're ex-boxers, so it was a place, and it had maybe 18 seats, and you went there. It was open from around 6 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. You went in there, and Barney started insulting you the moment you came in the door, uh, said, Uh, What's good today, Barney, said, you schmuck, it's the same every day. It's been the same for 40 years. Where you been? Don't you know what this place is? You shouldn't be here, you know. It was just nonstop, and people went in to get insulted, you know. But the atmosphere was superb. There were photos of boxers all over. I think it had last been renovated, maybe 25 years before we found it. But some of the most amazing French toast you've ever had, and... Very fast service. Service was really fast. He said, you've already had three cups of coffee. What are you going to do today if I give you another one? You know, so anyway, I like that. But that's idiosyncratic, you know, and that's what humans are. Humans, humans at their best are odd. I agree with you. And I think that there's something
1: else. And this happens in advertising and marketing all the time is they design and try to sell to a norm that doesn't exist. You know, because all the edges get taken off as they're trying to make it fit into a category. And as a result, everything gets compromised along the way. And it's no longer idiosyncratic. It's no longer interesting because of that. And I think that idiosyncratic aspect is really important.
0: Yeah. It was very, very interesting. There was kind of a breakthrough today. And I saw it and it was Netflix. Netflix sent a letter out to all their employees. And they said, if you're going to be triggered by our upcoming season, you should be working somewhere else. And tell me what that meant. Well, you know, the Dave Chappelle thing, they had a real problem with Dave Chappelle. And the company stood up for Dave Chappelle. First of all, they make money on Dave Chappelle. They spend money on their employees who are triggered by Dave Chappelle. I happen to think he's very, very funny and not for everybody's taste, but is funny but what they're saying is that we're no longer going to be censored by a minority of our employees well and what's fascinating
1: about that though is i knew and i talked to friends about it that i didn't know that netflix stock would drop as dramatically as it did but for the past two and a half years so many people were shut-ins and so you know you're going to watch Netflix while you're on your Peloton, You know all these things that finally we could go out and engage. That market had shrunk. Mm-hmm. And I think about, I was actually talking to a friend about it today. And I think about the
0: hype that goes with some of these things. And you remember Clubhouse? I could never see why I would want to listen to a group of people. <laughs> I'm with you. And especially for like four or
1: five hours in the evening, unless you're a shut-in, maybe then. But, you know, that got huge influx of capital investment. But whoever talks about it anymore,
0: nobody. Yeah. Well, I remember people said, we'll get you on. We'll bring you into our room and we'll feature you. And I said, but I can't see anybody. I said, (laughs) I love Zoom. I said, I love Zoom because I'm a bit of a visual person, you know. I really love this experience. No, I remember that. And the people who were almost obsessive about this, they haven't talked about it in a year and a half. That's
1: right. That's right.
0: I bought an, an iPad just to be on. You know, I went on once. They introduced me. I mean, my friends were very kind to me and they told everybody. And then I got some of the most inane questions from the audience. You know, and I said, geez, you know. I'm talking to very, very successful entrepreneurs and they're introducing me to their very successful entrepreneurs. I said, word of mouth and referrals still works better than this could ever work. That's right,
1: that's right. So what do you think, Dan? What is it that constitutes customer service so people will go somewhere, show up? You know, what is it that creates that stickiness or that brings in consumers to a physical space.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's the difference between being interesting. I think there's an enormous amount of competition on the part of people being interesting today. You know, and that goes for retailers. Retailers are trying to be interesting, but actually, we value retailers that are interested. You know, they find out about us, they kind of find out what we like, they're interested in what we're interested in, and everything else. And, I mean, it's, I was gonna say, it's like friendship. They're doing something, you're doing something. They plan on doing it for a long time. You plan on doing it for a long time. And you're coming to them as part of their prediction of the future. And you going to them as part of your prediction of the future, you're always going to be going there. Unfortunately, during COVID here in Toronto, I had two restaurants that I'd gone to for 40 years and they both shut down during COVID. Okay, and I think it was half and half. They were closed down, and I think that they had given some thought about closing it down sometime, and then they just used this as the opportunity. Both of them were French restaurants. I went on alternative Saturdays for 40 years, same owners for 40 years. And it was only in my 30th year that I discovered that I was always seated at table 10 in both restaurants. (laughs) So, you know, we both
1: deal with a lot of tech people and you deal with far more entrepreneurs than I do. And there's all this talk about AI. One of the things that Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy said is that businesses spend too much time trying to target the consumer rather than serve the consumer. And I was wondering your thoughts on that because that kind of targeting, I mean, it's direct marketing, it's how you get your business out there, it's how our friend Joe does. Joe Polish, what is that path to the consumer? Is it AI or is it just paying attention, as you said, and building a relationship that's independent of the technology?
0: Well, they want to know as much as they can know without actually having a relationship. (laughs) So it's kind of like reading your mail and then sealing it again so that you know that they didn't read the mail or listening into on your phone conversations without you know it. It's creepy actually. It's a very, very creepy approach. And I get a feeling that these tech people, you know, a lot of them who become tech superstars really were never good at getting dates.
1: Well, that's how Facebook started, isn't it?
0: Yeah. You know, and that's a powerful motivator. You know. So I I think that you're right. First of all, it's almost entirely guys. I mean, I guess there's women like this, but they don't express it in this particular way. I'm curious what
1: you are thinking. I'm going to, whatever going on the record means in this podcast. I'm thinking after what I read today that Elon Musk is not going to go through with the purchase of Twitter. I think that deal is not going to happen. What's your opinion?
0: That would be my first. First of all, I mean, Tesla is having a bad year. I mean, they're down 39%. And the valuation of Tesla is one of the more interesting phenomena of our day because, you know, he's evaluated at, I mean, his net worth is evaluated at $230 They topped a trillion in evaluation. But I was talking to Peter Diamandis about this, and Peter knows Elon for 25, 30 years. He knows him since he first got started in PayPal. I said, you know, he's one of the more interesting cases, and I don't know if there's anyone who can equal him, where the person is the stock. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. In the blockchain world, there are two parts to blockchain. There's a smart contract, and there's a thing called a non-fungible token, and it's a one-off. He would be probably the first trillion-dollar NFT. You know, it was almost like he's a a one-of-a-kind, you know. I mean, he's obviously very, very unique. I think he's worked out a complete thought system for himself about how he approaches the world, how he approaches new things that I think is really quite extraordinary. I think he's actually a unique thinker. And like all other thinkers, doesn't always guess right, doesn't always express himself in a way that necessarily encourages cooperation or collaboration with people. But I think that he does look long. And I think that he just saw his overall Tesla stock go down by 39%. And the other thing is that he's a troll. So he likes doing things that just piss off people so he can make a bid, win the bid, and then said you don't even have what I bought. So I'm putting a hold on it. And meanwhile, he just Twitter just gets totally, I mean, they have people leaving already, people are resigning and everything else. And he said, "Why? when you throw dynamite in the middle of the pond, all sorts of things happen. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and it is interesting. So you agree that there's a high likelihood that it won't happen? Yeah, because my feeling is a lot of other investors will just bail on the stock. Maybe it's time for something new to come along in the area of that medium, social media and everything like that. You know, I think a lot of people are taking notes and saying, what's the next version? It's obviously that people are going to socially interact using digital means. And maybe there's a new model that's going to come up now as we go through this. Well, they tried that with Clubhouse. That was the new, new thing at the time. Yeah. You know, the new car came without a couple of tires, a couple couple, couple of wheels. Yeah, I I agree. But
1: it's fascinating because as we were engaged in this conversation with the master's program yesterday in the panel I did, all directions pointed towards the past. Yeah. And that's what was so fascinating. Now, my parents' day, It was actual intelligence, not artificial intelligence, you know. And they knew their customers. They knew what they would like. They knew how to engage them. They had built trust. And the other thing that's so interesting about physical stores is it's really hard to build a brand online. Like, I wouldn't say that Amazon is a brand. Amazon is a price and selection proposition. It's not a brand.
0: Yeah, it's a platform has certainly a platform, but it's not a brand. Right. Yeah, right. Now, what's the distinction you draw there? Well, you have a platform. I mean, the way we describe it in Coach is that there's three levels. There's shortcuts, you know, and when you start off in business, usually people become known for a particular type of shortcut. And the shortcut is twofold. It shortcuts in the way that you operate backstage. You figure out a way of being more productive backstage and you've got shortcuts in the front stage that create value faster, easier, cheaper, bigger. You've got some shortcuts to do that. And all you're doing is scrambling for cash flow. I mean, you're just, you need shortcuts because you need the cash (laughs) now, you need the cash now. But after a while, certain things become really permanent skills, unique permanent skills. And then you start creating what I could call programs. So with Strategic Coach, I started off in the 80s and I had a tool called the Strategy Circle. And it was a thought process, a four step thought process. And you simply ask people, it's three years from today. You're looking back over the three years back to today. And what has to happen over those three years for you to feel happy with your progress? Now. I'm the questioner, but I don't know the answers. The only person who knows the answers is the person I'm talking to. And they said, Well, for an instance, I said, Well, first of all, just revenues, because they were all entrepreneurs. I'd say, Where do you want to be revenue wise three years from today? That would make you happy. And they give a number. And then I said, What about your quality of clients that you can put a number on? You know, what would be the average, you know, revenue per client that you got, you do that. And then you go into their personal life. And then you say anything else you want to do? And he says, Yeah, I want to write a book. Okay, write a book. And I gave them five, they could have five things. And then, you know, if they had seven, I say, there's five that are more important than the other two, So which are the five. And then I'd come back and I say, Okay, so If we're looking at the next 90 days, what are the biggest obstacles that you have right now to make progress? Okay. And they go through the obstacles and I'd say, okay, it's a decision, it's a communication or it's an action that you take. And we'd go through those and they'd write me $1,500 check to get the process started. And then they gave me $750 every quarter to keep it going. I kept, I've got one who he's been with me for 35 years. He was in an event I had this morning. So in July, I've seen him every quarter for 35 years and we got started in July of 1987. So that was the beginning that I had this one thing. But what it meant, Jeff, was that I could have 30 clients and they were all in the same process. And that was my shortcut. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't have to create a separate unique map for each of them. I simply had a structure that was common for all of them, but what they put in it was totally unique to them. So I provided the structure and they provided the content and that was a shortcut. So the
1: structure that you're talking about is the questions that you ask Mm -hmm.
0: and however you systematize that, because the unique aspects aren't the questions, unique aspects are how they answer the unique content isn't my content, it's their content. Right. Yeah. So that's what I decided. But we now have 400 copyright protected thinking processes, you know, and we've had 21,000 entrepreneurs, and I've got 17 other coaches and everything like that. But the basic, we call it VODA. You have a vision, then you entertain the opposition to the vision, then you transform the opposition into action and the action creates the vision so it's a self-contained system but that was a fundamental breakthrough you know and then we've gone from just me to you know we have 130 team members now 17 coaches and everything so the big thing was and we built a brand i mean we have a brand out of that but we have a platform so we have lots of shortcuts we call our tool shortcuts and then i have four programs and they're Mostly their ambition and income level determine the first level they come in, you know, and it's they can stay there forever. They can stay at any level they want forever, but after one year and one level they have the choice to jump up to another level. And increasingly I have people who are coming in at one level. And the big breakthrough for us is we've gone to Zoom now. So since the beginning of last year, it's been our best sales. Historically, about 40% will never be in an in person workshop. It's always Zoom. So, how much would you say that you do parallels
1: a therapist relationship with a client?
0: Well, I don't know because I've never been to a therapist, so I don't know what they do. But the thing is that I'm convinced that they've got a lot of information in their brain that they can't access for themselves. They can ask themselves questions to get answers that draw out new material. But we have the ability just to ask questions. And these are all open. We don't have any. I've never in, you know, since I started, I started when I hit this method, it was 1982. So it's 40 years since I came up with this particular method. I've never asked a question that I knew the answer to. The opposite of a lawyer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's just the opposite, and that is I consider it insulting to ask somebody a question and they, they're they supposed to re- repeat my answer. So no, it's always that when they are asked a question that they haven't thought about before, all of a sudden they access all sorts of information and knowledge that they have, and it can get written down. And what we do a good job is of having a means for them to record it and to organize it and to focus the knowledge that they have. You no, know, it's fascinating because
1: it makes me think of two things. One is therapy, where a good therapist guides you on the journey and allows you to hear yourself, yeah. Yeah. you know, as opposed to telling you what's the matter with you, right? Which I think sounds like you do that, but it also relates to Stanislavski method. You know, what is it you want? Yeah. What are the obstacles in the way of that? What are you willing to do?
0: And I don't know if you want to do that at all in your theater background, but... Yeah, what they lack is a structure for their own experience, you know. Mm -hmm. You're talking about people in general. Yeah, yeah. I think generally people don't have a structure for making sense of their own experience, you know. But entrepreneurs, I mean, uh, people say, you should do this with children. I said, they don't write checks. (laughs) (laughs) And I says, besides, you don't know if they're going to become something. I said, you know, you get a really hot shot 30-year-old, you don't know whether it's actually them or their parents or their sport they've got. I said, by 40, you know something about somebody. If they're a hot shot at 40, they're unique. I mean, they've come to grips with their own experience. But the big thing is, They have the experience going back to the retail and the customer service and idiosyncratic. I would say every one of our strategic coach clients feels that they've come to know themselves and they've done their best thinking within the environment of strategic coach. Well, I would assume that there's an expectation that if you're going to participate,
1: you are primed and ready to do so. Yeah. You know, otherwise, you're wasting your money. Yeah.
0: But the big thing is that I'm deeply interested. I mean, I sit down with somebody and, you know, I'm deeply, deeply interested in what's going on with them because they're really very, very interesting people. I mean, they're outliers. Ben Hardy, you know, who was getting his doctoral degree from Clemson when we started the book writing project, and he said, you may have the most unusual outlier research community in the world. And he said, what I mean by that, he says, virtually everything I've studied in psychology in Clemson is the result of asking questions of 22 to 29-year-old graduate students. Is that almost all of psychology is based on 22 to 29-year-olds who are a very select but dependent group of people in the world. There are people who haven't done anything yet. right? And you're taking lessons from them and you're projecting it on the human race. (laughs) And he says, yours are all outliers. And, you know, humorously, I say to you, how many of you are the odd person in your family? And how many of you growing up, you were odd, you know, in relationship to your social circle? When you were, you know, a young child, or you were a teenager, and they all raised their hand, and I said, "How many of you, when you got into your industry, you know, they all have to learn how to do something, you know, so they join an industry, you were fashion, but how many of you were sort of the odd person when you were in your industry? And they're always the odd person out." So tell me what you mean. Define for me what an outlier is. You have a way of getting the defined results, but you don't believe in anybody else's method. (laughs) And what I mean by that, you're not disagreeing with the result of the effort. You're disagreeing with somebody else's method of getting there because you can think of a way that's faster and easier. And in fact, can they?
1: I mean, they come to you for a reason.
0: And if they thought they knew
1: it all, they wouldn't come to you.
0: No, they come to me because they got way too much going on and they can't sort it out. Uh-huh. They have idea after idea after idea and they, they're having difficulty implementing. You know, even though by comparison with other people, they're successful, they don't see themselves as such. How many people would you say, as a result of the lockdown
1: we experienced in the last two and a half years, how many people decided to opt for an entrepreneurial route almost by default because either their job went away or they you know couldn't apply the trade that they had and they looked at it as an opportunity to do something they've always wanted to do but never did it.
0: Yeah, I really don't have a feel for that because one of our basic requirements is you have to have been an entrepreneur for at least 3 years mm-hmm. successfully before you can apply for the program. And then we have income you know 200,000 is the minimum personal income that you have to have to start. So, I would be talking on the basis. Now, this isn't a bad thing, but I would be talking on the basis of absolutely no information or knowledge to answer your question. Not that that's ever stopped me in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you're an outlier. I mean, I, I could tell right off the bat when I first met you that totally you're an outlier.
1: Well, so what are the indicators to what an outlier is from your perception?
0: Well, somebody who, when they're crossing 70, believes that they've now done enough research and now it's time to actually get into the theater world and actually write, create your first Broadway musical. I would say that that's... Insane. <laughs> no, I just think it's a different approach. Yeah, it's... You and
1: Babs have been very supportive of it and of the whole journey. But, you know, everybody that you deal with has got their own personal journey going on. And how much of the attraction to strategic coach, aside from yourself as the hub and the magnet of that, you know, how much of that is desiring to have a sense of community and be a part of something that maybe. Prior to that, they weren't exposed to a group of people that they could relate to in the same way.
0: Yeah, you've really put your finger on what I think the biggest danger of the entrepreneurial life is loneliness. And a lot of people make very foolish decisions to alleviate their loneliness, you know, in their personal life or their business life, they take unnecessary risks in their business life and that they take unnecessary risks in their personal life. It's very, very interesting. I was watching just a 15-minute public television video with Bill Gates, okay? And this is after the divorce and it's after, you know, the rumors about him having met on several occasions with Jeffrey Epstein and you know and then the word came out that he had had affairs with employees at Microsoft and you know it was there and he was sitting there and i said you know bill when you can lose 3 billion dollars and it's not even a rounding error on your net worth i bet you miss the old days when you could actually take a risk you know I feel that a lot of these people who get really compromised with these morality issues, you know, as they get older, I don't think it's about the topic that everybody says, you know, and usually it's man and it's usually about sex. And I said, I don't think it's really about sex. I think it's just the sheer pleasure of experiencing risk again. Mm. And they can't do it in the money world. They've just got too much money. You know, they've just got too much money. They can't do it in the business world. They can't do it in the business world. I mean, he really hasn't done much with his life since he invented windows. Mm-hmm. Other than, I guess, because of his wife got involved in philanthropic
1: activities, but it seemed to be stem from her. Right? And
0: everybody who I know where the gates are involved, it just completely distorts and disrupts. The particular philanthropy, because everybody tries to get close to them and to get free money, and it totally distorts the the value of a lot of people are creating value, and then all of a sudden they get distorted. you know he's pushing seventy, I don't know how old he is, but he's pushing seventy, you know, and his future is incomparably smaller than his past, yeah, interesting, and he can't take a risk anymore, he can't take a risk. And I think Musk is trying to not be that way. It strikes me that he's a different kind of creature from all the other ones, is that I think he's taking legitimate risks. Well, I I think he's
1: also, at the core of it, he's a provocateur. And I think that motivates a lot. He likes having impact. He likes proving people wrong. And I think that when the risk that he puts out there is essentially who he is. Yeah. You know, and I, I think you're right. It's really interesting. I mean, even with Steve Jobs, it wasn't like that. Or Tim Cook, it's not like that. Or Johnny Ive, you know, it's not like that. But I think with Musk, it is. Yeah. And that's why going back to we're talking about Twitter, is that's why I believe, in a sense, he already accomplished what he wanted, which was just to disrupt. <laughs> that entire business for whatever personal reasons he's got. Yeah. And I
0: don't think he really cares about owning. I don't know. No, no. I think he's a deep thinker. I mean, at an engineering level, somebody said he's a really superb engineer. He really, really understands engineering. And he keeps probing for simpler, simpler engineering solutions, you know, with anything he does. He would look at Twitter and he would look at it as an engineering issue that, they're not really being, I mean, you know, he didn't create PayPal. PayPal was an amalgamation of, there's about five or six of them, including Peter Thiel and a whole bunch of others who are very famous billionaires. I mean, they've all gone off. The guy who created LinkedIn was one of the PayPal people, Peter Thiel, you know, who has Palantir, which is a, a mysteriously Successful company. And then Elon Musk, and he didn't create Tesla. He was an investor in Tesla. Yeah, and bought it. Yeah. 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 So he doesn't actually create these things, he buys into them. You know, his one big thing is SpaceX. SpaceX is a revolutionary forever breakthrough because he reduced the cost of launching rockets into space by 90%. Well, and the just the brilliant stroke of When
1: it comes back, why can't we reuse it? Yeah, no, that's it. Which was brilliant.
0: Yeah, 90% of the cost of any space launch is in the first five minutes. I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah, so I think that, you know, your master class yesterday, your master group on retailing. Yeah, I think the emergence of the microchip got people down a one-ended street. And I think that backing up back to the main road again to customer service and relationship is probably profound.
1: Well, and I think you're right. And that's what I find so fascinating because we become so enamored with the technology that we lose the humanity, which is what connection is all about. Yeah, you know, and you built your business on people referring other people to your business. That's a human connection. Yeah. You didn't do a bunch of AI research on entrepreneurs to see who your target market was and target them. Yeah. But, you know, we grew up at a time where, in fact, that was different. There are people, you know, that are mid 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, never really experienced a bad market. They thought they were geniuses until a few weeks ago, you know, until a couple of months ago. And, They were enamored by AI that that had all the solutions, which even Musk doesn't think it does. You know, he's very suspicious of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you said, I thought your comparison of, you know, it's kind of like somebody going through your mail, you know, and that's how cons work. That's actually how faith healers work at these big revival things. you know, They get your credit card number, they get your zip code, you know, all that sort of thing. But I think we're going through another seismic change in terms of how business is conducted, because I think there's going to be a hybridization of online and physical retail where they work hand in glove as opposed to two separate divisions in a company that don't communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, So if you buy something online and you go into the store, the salesperson should be able to pull up what you bought, show you some similar things that you might like, can make it a seamless transition so that, you know, what you want to do ideally in any kind of sale is remove the obstacles to the sale. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really fascinating what's going on. And I think there's tremendous opportunity that people didn't recognize as recently as a year or so ago.
0: Yeah, and I think that, and I've always felt this, that the people who get favored by this are the people who are really gregarious. They like discussion. They like finding out about people's experiences. For example, I had a group in this morning and I had 45. It was a Zoom call. So one of the great gifts of the COVID period is Zoom because we never did workshops in Zoom before. It was all in person. And to increase the connection in addition to their quarterly workshops, we've always worked on a Quarterly, you come every 90 days. A lot of people, quarters really work for a lot of different reasons. But what we did is we inserted six two-hour sessions between, and anybody could show up for those. There are three primary levels in Coach. One is called Signature, and that's where everybody comes in at Signature. And before you can advance, you have to do at least a year in Signature because we have some basic shortcuts that you... So it's curriculum, essentially. Yeah, it's curriculum. And then you can do four, and the next one is called 10 times, where the focus is that now let's look at what in your company can actually go 10 times. Not everything can go 10 times. So we zero in on that. So that's a group that I was talking to. The third level is called uh, Free Zone, and that's all about collaboration. It's where you have a capability, somebody else has a capability, and you put the two capabilities together to create a much bigger result down the road. It's not a buyout. You're not taking shares. No money trades hands. It's just that you put two capabilities together. But it works best when you you have the same target customer, the same target customer, but you're doing two different things You're doing one thing, you're doing something for the customer, but you combine forces to create a third thing that's even better than the other two, or it's in addition to the other two. So I had 45 people in and in two hours, I had them go through two thinking processes, but I had every one of them talk every person talked, all 45 people. And I creep out my team. I said, how do you remember that you got every person? I said, I remember. (laughs) And I got every person. And one of the things I've learned on Zoom, you don't ask if someone has a question and you don't ask, uh, has anyone got anything to say? You just call on them and say, John, what's the biggest thing that's occurred to you as you did this thinking? What's something you're going to take from today's thinking that you're going to do right away? And they talk, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk, and that's part of the experience that they're getting. They're getting all these different entrepreneurial. But if I have less than fifty, I'll hit every person. Every person, you know, they talk for thirty seconds. But we have this one guy. He's from Sacramento, and he's got a executive recruitment firm for construction industry. And this is huge in the States right now because so much is coming back to the States now from a manufacturing standpoint and construction right now. It's just it's going to be one of the golden ages of construction the next 20 years because everybody's just pulling out of Southeast Asia and spy chains are coming back to North America. And he has in two years in the program, so he did a year and then he bumped up. He did his jump to my level. He went from four people, which was like a mom and pop business, to 110 people. And he went, you know, he's doing about $130 million worth of work a year right now. Mm -hmm. And all he did was put his service into a subscription. Okay. So you pay a subscription, and then he has a team that moves into your company and they work with your HR department. But they go, Yeah, you think you know the solution, but you're not quite sure of the problem. So let's look at your problem. So he goes much deeper and they just automatically renew. So it isn't by project, it isn't by job. And you're inside, not outside. He's just come up with this new model. So he gave a little five or six minute riff and everybody's sitting there. Wow, wow, that's really amazing. I said, you've gone about 3,000%. And I said, can you go another 10 times? He said, we'll do it this year. Hmm. So anyway, but he just gave a little, you know, off the cuff masterclass and everybody's taking notes. People are taking this. They say, can I call you? Can I talk to you about this? So he'll be talking to people for the next two or three months of how they could do that. But that's the shortcut. see, he's come up with a shortcut. Well, it's
1: interesting because two things. I do the same thing in my class because everybody's name is in the lower left, usually of their Zoom screen. So I can say, so Dan, tell me what you think about that, not Mm -hmm. wait for somebody, because do you find even with accomplished adults, it's like an oil painting, usually they are reluctant initially to start if nobody else says something? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you attribute that to? And how do you overcome that?
0: People who are real extroverts are in the minority. And that would go for me. I'm actually much more extroverted on Zoom than I am in person. You know, and part of it is my ADD because I'm distracted by a big room of people, but on Zoom, it's all you know. I get a lot of people in a small space, and they're all doing the same thing, but they're all on their toes that I'm going to call on them. Yeah. So I do it very unpredictably. I don't go in any order. I'll do one over here. I'll do one over here. I'll do one over here. And so everybody knows they're going to get called on. They just don't know when. And uh, I like that attention. I asked
1: my students this first day of class, and I said, how many of you are reluctant to speak up in a group, especially a new group? Most of them raised their hand. And I said, is there anybody that really kind of seizes up that it's just terrifying for you? And I saw somebody nod their head. And I said, so let me ask you a couple questions. And I engaged them in conversation. And then after about three minutes, four minutes, I said, how do you feel? They were like a little stunned. What do you mean? Well, I mean, did you have a heart attack? Did you stop breathing? Did you have a panic attack? You know, how you doing? Fine, fine. And I said, so now you get a sense of the risk and what's going to happen and what happened is nothing and then you shared your idea and think about and reflect on this what did you really have to be afraid of that actually gave had some breakthroughs in class with that which is pretty cool
0: yeah but the other thing that, in addition to that that i think is true that until they're called on they don't actually know what they have to say that's right and they're that's right they're put on the spot and then they have something to say so independently of being put on the spot, they really don't have anything to say. Well, you know, in our conversations,
1: the anything and everything, which we do live up to that, I think, you know, that you don't know what you know until you have to communicate it to somebody else.
0: Yeah. And it's a bit like improv. I mean, the two roles of improv, as I understand it, we've had them in a couple of times, the Second City people. There's Quite a powerful Second City community here in Toronto. John Candy, Mike Myers, they started at Second City in Toronto, not Chicago. And they said there's only two rules in improv is you never say no and you always help out your partner. Right. Right. That's the essence of collaboration. It's the essence of discussion and conversation.
1: Yes. And that people feel heard. Absolutely. 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 You know, next Tuesday, I'm having lunch with Bill Persky, Alan Zweibel. Bill Persky was the writer and producer with Carl Weiner of the Dick Van Dyke Show. And he's won Tony Award. He wrote 700 Sundays with Billy Crystal. He won four Emmys on Saturday Night Live. I'm sorry, I just conflated the two. Alan's Why Bell was one on Saturday Night Live. Bill Persky did Dick Van Dyke, That Girl. These were revolutionary shows for their time in Kate and Alley, Alan did Saturday Night Live, 700 Sundays. And between the two of them, there's like nine Emmy Awards, two Writers Guild, Lifetime Achievement Awards, and Tony Award. Mm-hmm. And what I want to do is talk to them about, I, I want to look at, and I don't know the answer to this yet, but I want to look at humor through a different lens. And I'm not sure what that lens is. So it's going to be a discovery for me because I don't have an idea that I want to fix on. I just want to pinball around with them because they're both really smart and fun and interesting people. And that's a lunch I'd love to have you at. I think you would really enjoy <laughs> those guys. Yeah. Because it's just fun. You know, it's fun when when you're learning something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Personality. Because you've got walk of personality. So... The update is that we're in discussion with two theaters in Chicago. Mm -hmm. We are aiming for... Studebaker,
0: Studebaker was one of them, right? That's right.
1: Yeah. That's right. And Broadway Playhouse. They have a bunch of theaters. It's the one at the Water Tower. And we don't have a done deal. We're in discussions with both. It's going to be a question of cost availability. When can we move into there and all of that, which we should know by the end of this coming week. But both of those theaters are very, very interested in the show. Oh, good. And then what we're going to do is back up from the time commitment to figure out, all right, what do we have to do? Can we contract with our first our creative team, then our actors? And, you know, there's just so many moving parts in this. But things are going well. Good. Are you into a new funding round now? We will be once we know what we're raising against. Okay. We know how much we need to raise yeah. because the difference between the two theaters isn't significant. Right. So I'll be sending you an update along with everybody else. But we haven't yet set up the entity to receive the money yeah. because we're starting a, a commercial run. It's a new company. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right.
0: I certainly have been learning a lot. I'll tell you that. You know, it's been quite interesting. Well, you know, Jeff, it's about time in your life that this happens. Yeah, it's about time I did something right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. I've got a sense where the Sudebaker is, and it's not a real busy place at night, which Chicago right now isn't the greatest thing. But the one in the water tower I've been to, and it's great well, Studebaker's actually been closed
1: for a while oh, and they did a oh, massive okay. renovation. Mm-hmm. They have a show that's booked in there to kick them off, but we're wondering about that show and how does that affect availability for us? Yeah. So we're just going to have to, you know, see what that is. But the Studebaker is in the, I think it's called the Arts Building. It's a gorgeous theater. Yep. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful theater.
0: No, I went online and I saw it. No, it's, it's extraordinarily beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's, to mount
1: a show, it's like giving birth, you know, it's nine months or so, you know, but you know, I'm, I'm very excited to get back to work on it. Yeah. You know, a, a friend of mine I had lunch with, he produced, this is so weird. I'll just tell you this, this quickly. It's not really a part of our discussion, but, Everything's a part of our discussion. Because it's anything and everything. So by definition, you're absolutely right. (laughs) So the play for colored girls who have considered suicide and the rainbow's not enough, couldn't have gotten better reviews. Phenomenal reviews. Camille Brown, who actually we had met, we talked about working together, schedules didn't work out, but she's a wonderful, incredibly talented person. She directed it and choreographed it. Ron Simon's the lead producer. That's who I had lunch with and we're friends. And I congratulated them on, you know, the reviews, which were spectacular. And it was so interesting because he said, we're at 50% capacity. We're just not selling tickets. And he said, I don't get it. And then the Tony Awards came out. Camille was nominated for... Best revival, best director, best choreographer. I think they were nominated for five Tony Awards. It's really interesting. And now they have an uptick on their ticket sales. They're extending it for two weeks and they may extend it even longer. And I I hope they're successful at it. The play deserves to live and to do well. But, you know, great reviews are no guarantee of commercial success. Tony Awards are no,
0: you know, no guarantee. I think what happened to your show was word of mouth. Oh, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, and my feeling is, you know, I believe in all sorts of different marketing, but word of mouth is central. Yeah, because who are you going to trust? If a good friend yeah. of yours whose taste you're yeah. aligned with says, oh, you got to see this. this is great. Not only that, but if you don't like it, they have to face you again. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, so... It's interesting. Well, we're off to Palm Beach on Sunday. We have all of our coaches, not our coaches. We did that last week. We were in Sedona, Arizona with all of our coaches for the first time. But this is our free zone. So we have about 40 people and they're each able to bring two guests. their collaborator if they have collaborations out in the marketplace and a key team member they can bring. So it's really great. We have, you know, seven hours, eight hours on Tuesday, but we have two evenings together and people are really hungry for that right now, you know. they. Yeah, at some point I'd love to talk to you about,
1: I don't know if you're in that world at all, but online curriculum, which apparently now is switching to a more hybrid model that you have some pre-tape, but you also have live as, you know, part of the whole thing. And I don't know if you're in that world at
0: all. Yeah, We've stayed away from that because Joe does that, you know, and I've been to other conferences. Peter Diamandis does it, you know, he's got online and live at the same time. And I don't think it's been worked out yet. Right. Uh, I think there's, uh, you know, an art and a science to this. And I don't think they've found the art and they haven't discovered the science (laughs) of how you do this. So we're back to in-person and they're great. They're great. And we're continuing on with Zoom because our Zoom sales, Zoom only sales are really high. And then we have people who are in person, we do the Zoom connector calls. So That's fantastic. We feel fantastic. I mean, our capabilities have just gone through the roof because of a global event.
1: You know? That is one of the great things, isn't it? I mean, like in my class, I had guests from France, from England, from Texas, from Los Angeles. And it was so great that oh, yeah. you know you're not limited,
0: yeah, you know in my lifetime, I mean, I was born in forty four so I was born just before Normandy, and I said to people, you know, in my entire lifetime, this is the biggest event that's happened, even of well, I wasn't too conscious in forty four but there's this geopolitical expert, Peter Zion, who I follow, yeah, yeah, he's some great, great youtubes, if you ever wanted to look. He's got 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, you know. But he is remarkably accurate in what he thinks is happening right now. But he said, we've lived in kind of an artificial world where you had basically a dormitory monitor called the United States that kept all the other kids in their beds and, you know, they weren't able to have pillow fights at night. And he said, after a while, they just got bored of the job. Hmm. Oh, hell's breaking loose.
1: That is true. But it's also interesting
0: what's happening now with Sweden and with Finland. Finland, oh, yeah. So to keep NATO away, the Russians invade Ukraine. And as a result, suddenly they got a NATO country with 800-mile border right next right. to them now. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. They're limited in their foresight, I think, the Russians right now. Oh, I think he had no idea
1: the resistance he was going to meet. And I think because he's one of these leaders that will broach no disagreement, you know, you probably don't make it to your room after dinner, you know, if you've disagreed with him. You don't even give him good news. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Because that's committing to something he may want to kill you for. Yeah, <laughs> that's right.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's unique, but it just shows you that type of system. It just suffers from no really good information flow or really good sharing of knowledge and everything. There was a little report, and it's kind of one of those just little things that says volumes. But it was that I think there's US people in Ukraine, like CIA, that are helping them. But what they want to do is when they knock off another tank or a Russian missile, you know, they get the wreckage of a Russian missile, they said, We'd like to inspect the inside. And they've noticed over the last three weeks that a lot of the electronics on their equipment are coming out of refrigerators. There's stuff that are commercial microchips that are out of household devices, so that when the sanctions came in, all the technology companies pulled out of Russia, every one of them pulled out of Russia just like that. But one of the big things, they're not getting chips. But not only that, they don't have the skilled people to actually create this stuff. So now they're replacing stuff with the insides of refrigerators. Wow. So it really, it's just a little indication, you know, of what an unlikely hero Zelensky is. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, in all of Putin's worst nightmares, he never imagined he'd be up against a five foot five Jewish comedian.
1: <laughs> yeah. That is true, that is true.
0: Nazi, Nazi! <laughs> who are you kidding? Me? You know, and look yeah. who he's aligned. Look at the impact he's yeah. had.
1: I mean, oh yeah. And
0: was he prepared for this? No. Uh, sure, he was a five foot five Jewish comedian. He was prepared for anything. <laughs> <laughs> he was pre- he was prepared for anything and everything. That's right. Yeah, he's an entertainer who knew a break when he saw one. It's <laughs> true. That's true and now he is on the world
1: stage. There you go. Well, as always, we've lived up to the name Anything and Everything. Great being here talking with my friend Dan Sullivan. Next time, we're going to go very specifically into Anything and Everything.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we're going to narrow it down. Now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Great seeing yeah. you. Love to Babs. Thanks man. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit a and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.